Hello, welcome to another episode of the Innovation Chatter Club. I thought it'd be good to do an episode on something that I don't really understand very well. Um, in this case, we're talking about drugs. I have to admit, I lived a bit of a sheltered childhood growing up in uh, growing up in Lancashire and Yorkshire, where um, the most illicit thing was really drinking far too much alcohol at um, an age where it wasn't necessarily legal. When I moved to Canada, I learned a lot about cannabis culture while not necessarily fully understanding it. I once got an opportunity to launch a cannabis website for one of the provincial governments, and to be honest, I must have been out of my depth. So in this episode, we're talking with Jeff Goldenberg and Peter Raitano, two guys that do amazing creative work with their social advertising agency called Abacus, while being involved in all sorts of ventures of their own for psychedelics, mushrooms, and cannabis products. In it, they talk about how cannabis has been legalized in Canada, what's worked, what hasn't worked, some of the regrets, and how it might work differently elsewhere. We then get on to talking about psychedelics and mushrooms, and Peter's launching a business of his own there called Mojo. Um, before, Jeff hits on a really good point about the metaverse, which I guess is in one of those places where we've gone through that real hype cycle. There's lots of people doing things, talking about things, calling themselves experts. But I think the way Jeff puts it at the end of the episode is a really nice way of not doing it down, but also just being really realistic about what new technology and new ways of living and engaging with the internet will will mean for us. This is a bit more of a ramble than I normally do at the start of these, but I think this is a really fun episode and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, gents, for doing this. Like, I love how like Jeff likes my post on LinkedIn and I don't know anything about drugs so I was like we should do one of these on drugs um, <laughs> what, what was the post on LinkedIn I just when I posted these other podcasts being like hey I did a podcast and Jeff's like one of those nice people that likes and shares it so you know one of those good good individuals in the world not one of your um, incendiary posts on LinkedIn then just a happy happy nice in post I know some some people know like Jeff's the happy nice guy I'm just a jerk <laughs> on LinkedIn not easy <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but I wanted to do one of these on like cannabis and psychedelics, and like, it's just a really interesting emergency, emer- like come, re- interesting emergency, really interesting industry emerging. I don't know very much about this. I designed a cannabis retail website back in the day, but like, why is Canada like this place where like weed is a thing, cannabis is being legalized, and now we're starting to see it happen in all these other countries around the world? You two guys are building a little bit of an empire. How the hell has that happened? Well, Canada's always been a fairly liberal place. Cannabis, for one, has been tolerated for a very long time, more so in some places like BC and big cities like Toronto, but haven't really cared about it for a while. So I guess the, the timing was right. But then our one of our major political parties made it like a big part of their platform that they were going to be the ones to legalize it. And for better or worse... It's now legal as of like when 2018. So um, it's it's not a, a center for like it's not like a hub of cultural. It's it's more become a hub for like corporate weed because we have it, they've had to figure out how to build companies and grow weed within this uh, regular uniquely regulated market. So I think just generally liberal value, liberal uh, opinions and policies towards weed made it fairly easy to switch over. Yeah, I, I, w- I would also add like it w- a lot of people look at it and kind of think it was 
relatively fast. I mean, it's always been there in Canadian culture. Medical cannabis was legal 20 years ago. So this has been a 20 year process to recreational. So it's by, by no means overnight, but yeah, like BC is basically the champagne region of cannabis worldwide. I mean, it's, it's, it's known for it. I remember first I came over here when I was 20 and I was a heavy cannabis smoker in the UK, but in the UK, you know, we weren't really getting quality stuff, uh, twigs and pebbles and all sorts, but I considered myself an extremely heavy smoker from 16 to, you know, 25. And I, we were staying in Banff and we picked up a little bit of weed and I had one drag of this BC bud and it, we were going to go out uh, and hang out with these girls that were staying in our hostel as well. And we, me and my brother had one drag and then we had to hide underneath our, our bed sheets for the rest of the night crying in, in anxiety. Like it's just, it's just like baked into, excuse the pun, Canadian culture, I think. But the first time I had weed in Canada, I was like, what is this? I, <laughs> it was like an out of body experience compared mm-hmm. to like the stuff that you got as a teenager in Yorkshire. And it was like, someone may as well have given me some damp tea. Yeah, all, the, all that really nasty, like, brown resin you used to get that you have to burn and then rub into yeah. it. It was, yeah, bad times. We also had medical uh, cannabis for, like, four or five years before rec. And, 20 years. Uh, oh, yeah, I was thinking, sorry, m- more about the MMPR program, like the modern one, but you're right, it was there forever. But it had developed into a modern program where – you got pres- prescriptions from doctors and either took them to your pharmacy or took them directly to the growers. And that was done through um, e-commerce. And it's really funny. Like we had that system and I was a patient pretty early in that system. So I was used to like picking my LP, sending them my prescription and then ordering through websites. And then the Ontario government or the federal government gets involved and they're going to figure out how to sell it. And they take all these years and spend all this money just to come back and do it through a website like they had at the beginning. I think it's really funny because they had a system. Then they go and spend all this time and money and then come back to the system they already had. Um, but a very small percentage of weed gets sold online. I, th- I think that's pretty in- interesting. I don't know why. Probably because there's still a novelty of going to the store and people don't know exactly what they want because the brands aren't that strong yet. So I guess people go in thinking that they need help or want to look around. I guess as the industry gets more and more um, mature, there will be more online, but there's also a ton of delivery. So maybe delivery will just fill that gap between retail and um, e-commerce. Like, is the person that's buying is the the market changing? I remember like when I was designing this website for the Alberta government, we went out and did like customer interviews, and we'd ask people like where they got their weed from. The best one was when a guy like banged on his condo adjoining wall and was like, "Steve," and this guy <laughs> comes around and like has weed. Um, so he's like, "Why would I buy this from a website? I have my guy next door. I'm not doing this the legal way." But has like the has the market changed in the past few years since it's been legalized? Are like people I assume people still aren't always buying it legally, but I also assume a lot of people who previously weren't really consuming it have got into it. Well, um what I think it was Ontario said that um more people were now buying legally than they were buying from the legacy market. And that was met with mostly incre- incredulity, I think that's the word, around how they might know what's popping in the legacy market other than just using i guess some rough figures and they probably take what's sold and deduct it from what they thought was going to be sold and call the rest of the legacy i think weed weed smokers are a little bit different than drinkers and that they really value variety 
Um, they like to try a lot of stuff. Um, they like to mix the stuff they like that they know they like with new stuff. Um, prices and promotions change habits. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not a drinker, but I think that drinkers typically buy the same stuff over and over more often than we people who are looking for variety. Um, so I think, um, I think the core, the core market, the people who spend a lot of money probably buy, still buy from multiple sources, depending what it is they're looking for. Um, there's people like my dad who might pop in like once in a while, but not very often. And it'll last them like an inordinate amount of time. Um, so I don't know. I don't really know. I can't really wrap my head around this new smoker that legal market created. It must exist. I just can't picture it because in Canada for a long time, if you wanted it, it was relatively easy to find. Um, but regardless of how well they can calculate the, the, the legacy market, the, the legal market is obviously cutting into it quite substantially in California, where we also do work in that market. Um, it, it's substantial. Although there the gray market is, is much more well disguised and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference in the legal. Um, but I think they are taking a significant bite out of it. And as prices go down and quality goes up, they'll get more and more of the illicit market just by getting uh, providing good value. And we're starting to see that already. The, the price per gram on average is, is really dropping quite quickly. Yeah, and like the the sales has gone up consistently each year um, in the Canadian markets as new SKUs have come online and product types they've started to you know take shape and take some dollars but it's it's really still dry flower pre roll those kind of SKUs that, that people are using and and in, I think an in, a, a gratifying trend has been um, the big LP kind of banker funded capital markets groups have massively lost market share while we're seeing craft growers gain more market share and quality growers, Oxley, Organogram, people like that. You know, the Canadian cannabis story was one of certainly early on uh, insider capital markets, bankers, and uh, you know, these enormous companies that projected incredible futures that you know were never going to be realized to pump their stock um, and now we're seeing kind of real businesses um, come through and these these giant kind of capital markets play subside and, and lose a lot of market share so I, I think it's a really a really interesting time I mean to start with to see like a consumer all of the big LPs to start with we're all talking about this mysterious cannabis curious the kind of curious we're going to take the soccer mom who drinks Riesling on a Wednesday and we're going to convert it <laughs> to the joints instead. And just none of this happened. And the fact is most of the people that consume most of the cannabis are the people that always kind of have done There's, Of course, there's net new people coming online and trying cannabis, but it, it's really, it's really that core consumer that, that was, that was there before. And I, I even think about like the early marketing that a lot of people were doing was very much this kind of, city urban elevated let's elevate this brand let's you know make it hyper minimal apple style and they kind of elevated it out of the stratosphere to the point where it was alienating to i think the the consumer that was going to be consuming their products and now we're kind of seeing this again realignment these interesting brands kind of be created by people that probably do smoke legacy growers etc cetera, etc cetera, or just people that know how to do good cpg research they know who the consumer are and they're coming up with these brands that are 
aligned with that core demographic with with products that are stronger that are you know more cost effective that are speaking to them that have good value propositions so in my head the canadian market is really just coming online it's been three years of kind of fuckery and, and finding feet and lp doing all of this stuff and now real brands and real companies are being created it's the same as the dot-com industry when you think about it like the for the dot-com 1.0 companies like geocities and napster and AltaVista and yahoo all those companies they came and got massive valuations and tons of cash and they went out and created the whole internet and then some of them survived most of them didn't but that let that laid the foundation for the 2.0 and 3.0 web uh, brands and companies that they then came on basically got to rent what the, what the first companies built dollar for dollar and then segmented the market better than just this for everyone. And I think that's, what's going to happen with cannabis is everyone's going to find their own lane define a, a type of customer that they're going after and basically uh, take advantage of the infrastructure that, preceded us but it, i think it's just like the dot-com boom in that if the overvaluations and that influx of cash didn't happen the 1.0 companies never would have been able to create the infrastructure that built the economy that now the smart companies are going to pick up on and and take advantage of so i think it follows very similarly if it's not for big huge 1.0 valuations none there's never a commercial argument to do what needs to be done the same thing i was reading about the metaverse the problem with the metaverse is that when when data travels over a far distance, it's only as fast as its slowest network. And there's never been a commercial case to upgrade the system such that the slowest part of the network gets upgraded to as fast as the fastest part of the network. And that creates a ton of latency. Without a commercial reason to change that, the companies aren't going to put the investment in. There isn't a commercial reason. And that's where I think the market comes in and does its thing. It also ensures only about it? 200 people will ever get rich, but that's another <laughs> point we can discuss on another show. <laughs> we'll do that on our episode on socialism. Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> um, how does it work for brands? Because like, I remember like when there was so much regulation wrapped around cannabis being legalized to the point of when I was shopping for something, I wouldn't necessarily know a name of a producer didn't mean a lot to me. It might mean a lot to other people, but like the packaging has been sterilized almost. How do you build a great cannabis brand with all the restrictions that exist around you? And the short answer is you don't. And that's not being <laughs> facetious. I mean, we had the opportunity to lead the world in commercial cannabis and it became so political that we blew it. And now we're all going to smoke American weed as reimagined by Canadian LPs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of dumb because it didn't have to be that way. I always say to people that if the go the government ended up regulating cannabis like cigarettes, and if that's what they thought of the market, I would have preferred that they didn't launch it because I don't think a new cigarette, you know, industry would launch today knowing what we know about it. So that the real shame is that is, is how big of a player we could have been on this scene. And now it's not going to happen. And it was all just for, political bickering and little wins here and there yeah so it's, it's an opportunity for germany is what you're saying well <laughs> the opportunity is going to be that over time the, the the rules will relax and there will be um more opportunities to create brands and tell stories i think when we think about brands now we try to figure out stuff that uh, can work without explanation 
So figure out ways that the brands can do a degree of lifting that other brands wouldn't have to if you could talk about them. But it's still limited. And I think about like the brands that have really killed it. I mean, they've done... There was a there's a brand that sold to I can't remember who they sold to but Redican they were called and they just they just stuck to canopy. Very specific, no, it wasn't canopy. It was uh, Hexo, I think. Um, Hexo. But it was like nine hundred million dollars sell. Anyway, they dominated and they they made like cheap uh, quality weed that was in cigarette form. These kind of little thins. They just became known as like the little thin, convenient, smokable. Um, cigarettes and, and and nothing else and they just kind of hammered, hammered that hammered that created that one skew and did really well from it um that's really what you could do or can do in the, the canadian market of course now we're seeing different things come online people do care about the the growers and you know these these interesting kind of niche products like shatter and things like that and rosin so we're starting to see a lot of that kind of quality come through but you're right you can't brand it's very difficult to advertise digitally you're not we're not on, you can't be on facebook or instagram really very limited what you can do or speak to so um you know there's pick a form factor try and dominate and do something interesting have, have a quality product but in in the us it, it is obviously very different like you can brand you can do a whole bunch of things state by state and i i would assume germany would go down that route as well i think people are going to look at canada and kind of pick up on those lessons learned that they we basically kneecapped ourselves. We could have been a global player, could have been a contender and we're forever going to be a, a localized market now in Canada. It's an unfortunately Canadian story that plays out again and again and again, no matter what the industry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though, like the, like the stuff that you see in American States and I'm assuming most, much of it's California, but there'll be like edibles that come in a packet and like, the Canadians have got, oh, no, a child might want that, and they would confuse it for whatever it is. Somehow Californian children don't do that, or they're just all baked off their face all the time. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But like that's the sort of stuff that you've got to think that if they did that here, it would be way more appealing. Mm-hmm. And it's a fine line. Um, there's stuff in California I see that's legal that probably shouldn't be, but um, the line's way too far on this side. You know, Um one of the things they said in the early laws was like one of the only things you could talk about is like comparative differences. So how your weed's different than other people's, but it's like, cool, but where can I do that? <laughs> like, where can I go tell people that mine is pinier than theirs or whatever it is than theirs? Like, where am I allowed to go tell that story? And the answer is like anywhere that's age gated. So that puts you on the platforms that all have their own policies or it puts you in real life nowhere. Cause like nowhere in real life is really age gated. So it creates these problems, but you can't bring a child into a cannabis store, but you could take a child into an alcohol store and let them ride around in the cart as long as they don't touch the bottles. So like, to me, that's about as arbitrary as one can get, especially because you can't even touch the product as an adult in the weed store. What are they afraid they're going to do? Like grab a baseball hat. So like, I don't understand. It just seems very, very arbitrary. And at some point it becomes disingenuous at some point when the position is really about creating tax revenue from it and then having government bodies that aren't in charge with promoting it like LCBO, but are just in charge with ensuring that people under 19 don't think it's cool or aren't able to get it. It really sets up uh, a real doozy of a situation for uh, anyone with, with any real ambition and it'll force 
U.S. brands up into Canada because they'll have brand recognition from what spills over. But I think worse for the industry, it'll force talent um, south because the people with imagination won't want to work in this situation. So it'll become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right now, you know, they don't want kids to be able to look into the store. So all the stores have to have blocks or something in front of it. But that's actually making it really unsafe because people can go in and rob them and no one from the street can see that there's anything going on. So it's like just little stories like that that, that just blow my mind. And, 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 and you know, the 800-pound gorilla is that this isn't as dangerous as drinking. This is the debate that's going on in the UK. Um, there was a report released from some group um, scared of the fact that it's going to eventually um, be legalized, and they were talking about exposure to to children. I just, I just don't understand the argument. We have a, a a ton of things that you can buy in stores that would be detrimental to to children. Aspirin. Um, I, I get the argument that you're, you know, you're dressing it up as a gummy or a chocolate, but you know. There's responsible adult usage and the, the and, and ways of treating substances are you know potentially damaging. We've seen from various different markets different ways of restricting access for children a variety of different types of products, and you know kids are still getting this stuff just illegally and non-regulated on the streets um, from you know 14 to 19. I would imagine so. It's better to legalize it and um you know restrict access and regulate access and improve quality it just there's, there's no yeah, argument yeah why is there why is there no child resistant on a bourbon bottle yeah yeah i mean i guess the only the only argument i see that sitting for a minute we would all just be like and then we'd pick it up that's alcohol okay. is clearly <laughs> more dangerous but i guess the alcohol the the argument would be back to ian's original point is yeah if you made it into a kid's gummy then it would they would be more likely to eat it than reach for the bourbon bottle. But I don't know. I've got a one year old crawling around, and they want to reach for for everything. Um, Takes after his I, dad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I drank my parents' alcohol when I was thirteen. Same. I think that was around the yeah, age where I started getting curious. And no yeah. one locks that stuff up. And it's all ha 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 when your kid gets into it. Like no one wants to send you to jail. And like, why it's just, it's just time. But remember when, when alcohol came, became legal again after prohibition and they were going to bring weed back, it was the alcohol people that kept weed out because they didn't want a competitor. And on the hemp side, uh, cotton didn't want a competitor to, to what they had going on. So there's also this lobby side to it. That's really nasty. And everywhere where weed has become legal, the, the beer and alcohol market have shrunk. So that's a big part about how, people with power lobby governments to ensure that other things get treated differently it's really interesting it's like a trust thing it's kind of it's kind of sad that like because they've regulated it so hard if you are when you are going to go buy something it's more trustworthy to knock on the partition between apartments and be like steve what have you got because i trust Mm -hmm. steve more than i do the government yeah or the brand that's in white in tiny lettering on a really ugly ugly piece of blue plastic it just it just class it speaks to classic government interference to me like there there was this ecosystem of people growing and selling weed responsibly we're not seeing massive people dying on mass and having all sorts of problems the government gets involved and makes it expensive they irradiate it because they want it to have like to be safer they make people buy million dollar safes so only the companies that could afford to have a million dollar safe could end up growing this so it's all of their buddies like 
everything the government did made it worse. Of course, like it's a it's a, it's a win um, that we got it over the line and made it legal, but they made a terribly uh, a, a terrible industry out of it. The government also makes more than all the all the other partners combined. Yeah, I don't know if that's the same with gasoline. Like I know the taxes are huge, but the the market is almost the market is almost created for the tax base to have the government tell us that it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's, they're they're it, legalizing a product so they can then regulate it. There's an interesting like booze analogy there because like booze in the UK like beer got weaker and weaker and weaker because the government taxed high strength mm-hmm. beer. So like go and get a pint in the UK like basically since the 1950s it's like 3.8 percent it's like basically drinking nice multi hoppy water it takes mm-hmm. a lot to get you pissed but almost that approach i think that approach originally started because of rationing after world war ii because they didn't actually have any ingredients to make beer with but like yeah. almost if you taxed cannabis based upon its potency might be an interesting and safer way of helping people get into it or mm-hmm. managing it i don't know might be talking it's tough because the the bigot like the higher the thc the more stuff sells historically Mm -hmm. the price and the thc have been related redican sold high thc for way less than other people so they got really popular but now it's like the only sort of quality signal so it's a tricky one i think it would make good weed really expensive which would drive people back to legacy um just knowing that most people are buying at the top of the thc spectrum in fact, like the Ontario government doesn't even want to buy weed that isn't 20% or higher. They don't think it'll sell well. Problem is that's conditioning, re, that's continuing to condition the market that THC percents all that matters, which isn't the truth. So it's tricky. I saw in someone the other day and they were buying like gummies and they were saying that they had like something that just like having no impact on them. And then like their friend had like given them something like, hey, do you want a gummy? I went, yeah, sure, I'd love one. Had it completely fucked because he got so used to whatever they were allowed to sell in the store that when he'd had something that someone had given him, he was like, yeah, done. <laughs> yeah. And, and not just that, like an entire pack of gummies can only total 10 milligrams THC, but if it's a gel cap, it can be unlimited. You can put in as much as you want up to like a thousand milligrams, something crazy. So like, that's so arbitrary. Why one edible form factor has to be capped and the other doesn't. So it's a, it's a weird thing. Like a, it's almost like so many rules that then contradict each other just cause for confusion in the end they make it worse than anyone ever the unintended consequences it it's just worse I mean, at, the, at the end of the day when when the political heat turns down i just imagine that it'll it'll become more rational and it is awesome that you can get it anywhere in the country you are you can carry it on planes no mm. one can bother you with it the prices are coming down the quality's going up health canada does keep a lot of bad stuff out of it um, for example, there's stuff you could do to grow tomatoes and cucumbers that you can't do to grow uh, cannabis because it's not good for you if it's if it's lit and inhaled. The people who are growing illegally don't care. Like they'll put those things in to increase yield and decrease their cost, and it's not good for you. So there is a benefit to it. I don't want to just be taking a huge dump on the industry. It's just like I look at what could have been really rationally, and it's just a shame because it's like. There's no brand affinity now. You know, I think OCS stopped taking new entrants because there was no brand affinity being formed, but that wasn't a nature of the number of brands available. That was the nature of their inability to tell people what they're up to. Yeah. So it'll get better. 
I bet you when we're talking in 2028 and it's been 10 years, every, there will be a lot of different, different. I'll set a reminder uh, for that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about psychedelics? Because like mushrooms are a world that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, like again, I don't know if I lived a sheltered like life growing up in Yorkshire, and <laughs> actually down in and down in Derbyshire, it was like just way they were way more cool than us. Um, <laughs> But they like, grow in like, cow poo, so I would think that maybe you would have stumbled on one. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, like growing up, I mean, I think we're around the same age. They were legal for a period of time. So we used to go into a store called Salamanders. It was the local head shop in, in Derby. And you could buy these uh, little plastic boxes with pretty decent dose of mushrooms. And it was it was a, I, I don't know what it weighed, but it would make us trip for eight, nine hours and we'd go off into the woods and, and take that as, as 16, 17 year olds. And they closed that loophole, um, I think when I was around 20, 22, something like that. But for a brief period, it was it was legal. Um, and now they're, they're rescheduled. Um, but no, it's it's exciting times. I mean, the for, for a brief period in the 50s, psychedelics were all the rays that were being researched. Uh, constantly for um, medical usage, uh, therapeutic usage, Tim Leary and people like that, Ram Das, they were all part of the Harvard Psychedelics Club and they would be, look, they did all of the early research on psychedelics and what they could do from a therapeutic standpoint. And then Nixon's war on drugs came about, he shut all of that stuff down, probably because it was just too close to, you know, there was a big Venn diagram with, the hippie movement and anti-war and kind of taking acid and that was a bit basically the same circle and so he uh he shut that down and since i would say the early 90s there's been a re-emergence um uh, with in- a real interest in psychedelics and what they can do and there's been some exemptions um and very early research from organizations like maps on um you know psilocybin and lsd and mdma and then, you know, fast forward 20 years later to now, say a couple of years ago, there was just an enormous burst of kind of capital flowing into the space and interest and kind of regulations being readjusted. And, you know, in Canada, it's been kind of positioned as this almost like a cannabis 2.0 with the investment interest you know, flooding in. And we've probably got about 25 different Mark, uh, companies on on the public exchanges here. We've got companies like Compass and Atai in Europe. So, and all of that's been happening on really more of the medical side. It's a bit different to cannabis because cannabis has uh, limited therapeutic research, whereas psychedelics have been, you know, since the 50s have had a lot of research. So it's basically picked up the baton and um, a lot of good research has been going on on what psychedelics can do for PTSD, anxiety, depression, you know, you name it, sexual function, all of these types of things. Addiction. Addiction. Some of it's really interesting and some of the companies are really high quality and some of it's complete garbage, pump and dump, Canadian classic, you know, stories that are are going on. Hey, we've got this facility in Jamaica. Hey, we're researching this. Hey, we've got this guy on our advisory board kind of deck nonsense. Um, But it's a, it's a really exciting time. Uh, it's we're going to see some great new drugs uh, come out of this to treat a variety of different disorders, um, treatment-resistant disorders, and we're going to see you know more people taking these substances, and which I think will 
help with a lot of kind of positive things like connectiveness and you know empathy and I don't want to get too woo-woo on this call I know Ian you're very allergic to woo-woo type of stuff <laughs> um, but I think psychedelics can genuinely help for a lot of the you know big existential questions we have um, you know meaning of life type stuff and so um, you know that that's where we're at we're seeing regulatory change we're seeing a lot of capital flow into the space Washington California Oregon are all tabling Kind of adult use initiatives so it won't just be medical you know be people will hopefully have the right to use these substances for whatever reason in short order so i don't need to like get upset about me being like we woo and stuff like the, the most dangerous drug we have at the moment is like this thing exactly. like, i agree i'm totally yeah. addicted to that device and i keep i'm i'm far more worried about what that does to my brain than anything else I agree. I agree. I'm, I, I brought this up on a call I was on with this uh, coach slash therapist guy that I was out doing a round table with. And I was like, what is everyone else doing for this? And he recommended Vipassana, which I'm sure works, but is a big commitment. This 10 days silent retreat by yourself in a cabin. Um, you know, I don't think many people have got time for that just, just yet. But yeah, it's... Uh... What's the first thing you'll do when you get back is check your phone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a, people... a, a, good guy, a guy about who'd done one of those side. Of, I've, I know a few people have done them, but like one guy was like, I went and did one of these 10 day silent retreats, piece of cake. He like walked through. He's like, that was great. I could totally do that again. He went home, was really excited to see his family and his family weren't there. And he just fucking broke down because he was like, all I've thought about for 10 days is seeing them and they're on here. What the fuck? And I then have... the other guy was telling Sorry, me he not. went through it. This other guy was telling me he went through it and he was like, um, yeah, it was really hard. Like day three, day four, I was ready to like be like, "Fuck this, I'm so done." And apparently, there was a guy who'd done it before, and he came back to come do it. And like, they they don't give you a lot of food in the evenings, and he got given like a little bit. They give him, they even gave him some cakes on like day three, and he just ate cake after cake after cake, and after he'd eaten the plate of cakes, was like, "I'm going home." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I've heard you need actual like proper reintegration after that 10 days like your senses are so refined and you're so kind of sensitive and i'll do i'll try it one day but not today <laughs> i've not i've not got the mental strength for it right now next time someone's bugging you about the metaverse or that the metaverse doesn't exist when they're not looking hide their phone and watch what happens when they're um when they're staring down the barrel of just a physical universe it's a great experiment on the metaverse point, I know we spent sounds to talk about drugs, but I think metaverse is interesting. But like, I, I'm one of those people that like to say the metaverse is bollocks. Not because I don't believe in it, but because anybody who really wants, like anyone who's sort of like doing anything that seems to get any noise, it's like, look how I replicated this thing in the real world. Like, we all saw the Walmart thing last week. Um, was... But it's just awful. Why, like, I almost feel like we should get people who are involved in like, talking about the metaverse and give them a shitload of drugs and then be like, go, go make something interesting. <laughs> the ones yeah. that will probably already have the drugs. So you're probably cool there. I yeah. don't know. I'm just, I'm just interested in people's split attention between the physical and the digital. That's all. I don't know that it has to be something. I just find it really fascinating that like our life, our, our, our digital representative or our life is in a lot of cases more important to us than our physical. And I just think what that means is we just have a technology problem. We're interfacing with the, the digital world through our phones, like you said, and at some point we won't. So I think it's that at some point when we won't deal with the internet through our phones and there'll be something that's more natural 
and, and less um, ridiculous as living through your phone that like, it'll just open up possibilities where your digital life and your physical life are a little more integrated than they are right now. But right now I feel they're very mentally integrated. And I think that's the big hurdle for society. I think it's the mental integration that proves that we could then build technology that's faster. I think we've already accepted it is what I'm trying to say. I think we've already accepted this splitness. It took iPhone 10 years to get rid of the home button, not because they couldn't get rid of the home button, but because people weren't ready for there not to be a home button. And it took conditioning. I feel like we're conditioned to live in both worlds. We'll go, you know, we'll watch concerts online. We think NFTs are valuable. Um, you know, we, we know after COVID that you can add value without being physically present. So all those big things are changing that no one would disagree about. And it's going to impact how we interact with the internet. That's all. It's not scary. It's not fucking weird or anything. So when I'm thinking about a pro progressive client who, who, you know, has younger audience, I, the natural question I ask is like, in addition to all this physical world stuff that we're thinking about, is there anything that they can do interesting to meet people where they're living digitally the same way they want to meet people where they're living physically? I don't think that that's that controversial. If you're old enough to have like a really rudimentary video game system, like in television or something, and you compare it to like what we have now, it's not that much bigger of a jump than like what we'll need to do to get, you know, we'll just need to get out. The phone has to go away. It has to become more ubiquitous and then everything will rock and roll. But what's the big deal? I think the big deal is people when, when people's virtual lives get subjectively objectively better than their physical lives, you're going to have more of a red, ready player one scene where, it's more fulfilling for someone to live their life digitally than physically. But the hundred year from now question is, is that a bad thing? Like, is it better for a billion people to live poor and have terrible like live lives when they could have better digital lives? I'm not going to touch on that one now, but it's certainly not an easy yes or no answer. So I don't know. I think it's going to be very different. Three minutes of you speaking, Jeff is like more enlightening than, a whole day's <laughs> worth lost in the Twitter and LinkedIn guff. It's far too easy. Well, I, I, can't, I can't really <laughs> make money off something that's going to happen in 20 years from now. So I have to be thinking about what's going to happen sooner than that. <laughs> and um, if you could find it or your your listeners, Adobe has a great video they pulled put out about what like the metaverse could look like in a couple years with just some basic technology uh, improvements. And it was a really good way of like realizing it's not – people just don't get it. And when they don't get something, they're afraid. And when they're afraid – they they feel personally challenged or their jobs are challenged and then they want to just say it's not existing but it's i remember when everyone said like you won't buy this on a phone or you won't buy that on a phone or you won't buy this on a phone and now we'll buy a car on the phone and insurance on our phone so they were wrong about that and those are the same people that were worried that they'd be left out in the cold when things went mobile so it's just same damn cycle over and over it's a word i just want to go away like it's a bad I read, word. I read a mckinsey trends deck and i don't know why i read it but it was talking about like how fidgetal was a trend for like 2022. I'm like, if anyone used that? that word in front, like to my face, I would punch them in the head. And I am not a violent person. If anyone tried to use the word fidgetal to me, and this is a good warning to anyone out there, I will punch them in the head. That is an irresponsible adult word to use. But a, it's it's not a word, and b like the whole concept of like since I was like it's I don't even know what year it was. It's so long ago I can't remember where you would go into a shop and look at the price of something on your phone. Or like I go look at the sizing of whatever I bought previously and like it, rather than having to try it on the store. Or I'll get to the point of purchase on my phone on more online and I will go and just touch the thing. Or I'll ask someone like what their Tesla's like to drive or whatever. Like 
it's this idea of like management consultants can't get out of their heads and like the world only exists in one linear happy path. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we just need to like make McKinsey people take drugs. I'm sure they do enough cocaine. <laughs> that, that, like, that, that's, that, that's that, hurt. <laughs> that couldn't hurt. I think it's like, like I, I think about mobile internet. People don't talk about being on the mobile, mobile internet. They will not talk about being in the metaverse. They will interact with their digital lives in a more seamless way to how they live. That's all it is. It's not like, oh, yeah, no, I checked out some insurance prices on the mobile internet the other day. Like, you don't talk about that. Or you don't say, Facebook, yo, oh, no, they're going to be the mobile internet. No, they're like a pretty popular destination on the mobile internet, but they can't, by definition, be the mobile internet. And it's just like, I find that is a good way to bring it back to real. Just substitute mobile internet for metaverse. <laughs> I'm definitely stealing that. It's got me yeah, out, you know, as, as soon as you say mobile internet, it makes me start thinking about to like WAP phones. Yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> so that was that was a way to view websites on 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 the internet when the technology and the bandwidth wasn't there. What we're doing now on the metaverse is the same thing. We don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the technology, so we proxy on it through our phones. That's not how it's going to be when we do. That's a really good example. I hadn't thought of WAP in a while. It, I, I still remember like when like three became a network in the UK and like I got my first three phone and like you're watching like football highlights in like the most grainy quality on some sort of folding brick and I, I thought that was the best I thought it was like a revelation I was getting to watch like the ball takes up about six pixels and I was getting to see it a few hours before it was on like the terrestrial TV highlight funny. fuck I feel old now <laughs> Yeah, just wait. <laughs> just wait. I don't think this next five years is going to be good on us. <laughs> um, gents, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, normally the way I wrap these up is asking people about like what they've seen recently that's really excited them or like given this is the first one these have recorded in 2022, what are you really excited about heading into this year? And don't give me uh, New Year's resolutions about being better people and eating healthy. <laughs> Jeff? No, I don't have anything i i want to promote like go take a walk it's good for you <laughs> you'll have a lot of good ideas and everything will be waiting for you when you get home so i'd like to promote walks nice you could have a perfect i laid you up to plug your own business and you told know, people to grow up <laughs> but i told you we got to build businesses that plug themselves because we can't advertise so now i can sit back and promote walks how about you pete anything in gummy form you'd like to tell us <laughs> I'll do one non non uh, non products and then product. I have been doing a lot of saunering and cold plunges that I highly recommend everyone try. There's a place opening up called Othership on King, I think. I'm not affiliated with them, but I know they're they're doing this type of stuff, and it's amazing. I really get a lot from it. And then on the product side, um, we have our product Mojo, which you can find at mojo.shop. It ships to the US and Canada, and essentially it's a uh, it's a gummy that pharmacologically mimics the benefits of taking a microdose without any of the psilocybin. So it's fully legal. It gives you some energy, focus, calm, uh, and helps with productivity and general creativity. So there's a code, WELCOME20, that you can use to get 20% off your first order. There we go. How's that for a plug? That's great. That so cool. I'm actually just going to go buy that now because I didn't, because like, I'm in the States at the moment, I didn't realize I could get that here. And now you've just sold it to me. So thank you. <laughs> Well, give them, give them the good promo code after. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Yeah. 
um the sauna thing's amazing i was i spent a month in quebec city and like it was a time when like no tourists were there and there's like a sauna spa like finnish scandinavian thing there and it was like 40 bucks to go on a weekday evening i was there every week it was awesome yeah man it's honestly more yeah, of that in quebec city it's, there's one in Montreal called Bota Bota or something as well that I really want to check out. There's like an old a tanker that's moored whatever that river is going through Montreal and you could, they've made it into a sauna cold experience. It looks amazing. Oh, I rode my bike past that. It looked quite cool. It's, yeah. like, it's, like, it's, not, it's not huge, but it looked pretty cool. Yeah, yes. the one in Quebec's like right on the river. It's awesome. But yeah. Thanks, gents. That was awesome. Awesome. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back very soon with another episode of the Innovation Chatter Club.